Welcome everyone to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I am Boris Evenstein and I'm here today with Jan Wimking. Jan is co-founder of Project Eden, a startup specializing in creating plant protein-based meat with real fibers for authentic texture and taste. And before starting Project Eden, Jan led the private labels brand team at Zalando. As COVID started, Jan reacted quickly by co-founding Upper Hand, a clothing company that produces antimicrobial masks and now socks. And Jan started his career Back in the day at McKinsey and Company in Berlin, that's also where, where we, we met. And he has a master's in business administration from Harvard and is one of the most gifted and passionate freehand drawing artists that I happen to know. Jan, welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. How are you? Thanks for having me. Doing very well. It's Monday. It's typically not my most favorite day in the world, um, but it's great to be here. And um, are you set to go on holiday later on or something? Did I catch that you're on the way to the airport? Uh, actually going on holidays on um, like in two days and but I still have one meeting to do so basically um, a little bit on the road and then uh, for a little while with the family. Nice but anyway the summer break is inside and presumably Absolutely. well deserved as I'm guessing you're running around um, judging by your busy calendar. So thanks for coming on let's begin with the question I, I love to start with, which is, who is Jan Wimking in, in your own words, in his own words? So I think the words that come to mind are curious. So I'm, I think I'm curious and um, I have a lot of ideas, um, which is good and bad. I have, um, I think, an intrinsic ambition and persistency like if I want to do something I'm doing it persistently and then even though I'm very very actually I think I'm a very anxious and scared person I somehow take a lot of leaps of faith and take a lot of risk in certain moments in my life so it's like this curious ambitious risk-taking interesting and we'll for sure spend a little bit of time on the risks that you took in your most recent venture or you know whether they are really risks or not that's for us to decide i mean we uh, we spoke last week on this podcast to angus ridgeway and we talked a lot about endings and beginnings so bringing a certain chapter of your life to an end beginning something new mm -hmm. and we discussed at length whether that really is risky or whether we tend to overemphasize those risks so it'd be interesting to yeah. see what you think totally that um, resonates so let's think a bit about your path and, and your journey so far. We often rely on individuals who unlock our paths along the way. Who helped you? I think my mother helped me the most when I think about it. So my mom taught me the basics of um, performance and um, especially related to beautiful experiences. So she's a musician. Um, she's a church musician and an organist and uh, choir leader and all these kinds of things. So I was, I think, already in the in while I was uh, in the womb and in the belly, um, I was sitting on an organ bench, and I'm pretty sure something transmitted by then in, in terms of how music and uh, emotions play a role. And at the age of four, I started playing violin, and then at the age of uh, eight, trumpet and 
later on became a leader of a brass band. So this whole topic of music, training, performing on stage and creating a beautiful moment that has been in there since I can think. And I kind of connect really well with that um, and like it a lot because I think in the end, everything that we do in a way has to do with creating beautiful experiences for others and, and, and prepping that and staging it in the right way. And um, way later in McKinsey, um, I also met a couple of people who really believed, I think at a certain point, way more in me than I was believing in myself and what I could potentially do. And yeah, there was this one, I give you two examples. There was one partner, Rene, uh, from Greece, actually. I met him in the first month in the firm and I still remember that I was really tired one afternoon. We were standing in, in a um, German large corporation, rainy day, not the most inspiring thing ever. And uh, he randomly asked me, hey, hey, what are you up to next week? Want to go to Korea? And I was like, man, this is great. I've never been to Korea, but I always love to go to Asia. I spent a couple of months in Singapore and suddenly, boom, there was this window of opportunity um, going to Asia, fleeing the grayness of German winter. And um, yeah, basically said yes. And then within two, two weeks, literally, I was, I was going to Seoul, uh, working with a fully Korean team with fully Korean clients. Crazy at that point in time, but that was really awesome. So I think he opened a a non-German view again to me, which I had uh, in my previous, uh, in my, my very first studies with Lufthansa German Airlines, but then at McKinsey it tended to be very German. And so, bam, very early on, uh, opened the door to an international look at it. And in Korea, actually, I met another person, Richard. And Richard, Richard Lee um, had studied in Harvard, and which I found crazy, highly impressive. Like, to me, that was... I've never met somebody before that, that was in Harvard Business School. And he said, like, oh, you're from Germany, you're doing this PhD program, I'm pretty sure, but have you ever thought about going to Harvard to do an MBA? And I said, like, yeah, how would I ever be able to do that? And so we had a couple of more random conversations, and he instilled that belief in me that this is something I can do, which I never really thought I could do. And later on, like, fast forward... I mean, I applied to Harvard Business School, got accepted, had a fantastic two years there and met my wife and it was a life-changing experience. And so wow. I think from my mother to people like Richard and Seoul, there have been many other people, oftentimes um, met them in, in uh, random moments. But I think there's one pattern that, especially when meeting new people, I started being more courageous and asking questions that um, I might not have asked in the past. And I think that opens doors a lot. Like what? Can you, can you give us a few examples of questions that you put to folks that maybe you would be a bit shy otherwise? I think asking personal questions like, why did you do that? Or how do you really feel about this? And what would you, what would you do right now if you, if you had all the money and power in the world? I think these are a little bit pathetic questions, but they oftentimes open up very interesting conversations beyond the normal. And beyond the normal is typically where I can then see an overlap in interest and overlap in, in, in yeah, potential things doing together, not together, or learning something from each other. And I think this is, for me, the most fruitful exchange, like going beyond the surface very fast. Yeah. And I think is I got training in that, so I'm part of um, a network called YPO as well, 
which is um, really trying to um, train people in a way that you go through, cut through the clutter very fast to go into the, I would say, highly emotional topics, which are in the end a lot of, a lot of time the main drivers of what we're actually doing and want to do. And is there a way for, for you to increase the kind of surface area of potentially interesting or relevant people that you can come in contact with? Is there a, a way to maximize the opportunity space? Yeah, I think there is. There's a couple of things. First of all, um, I mean, question to you, would you ever like to go to a party alone? And the <laughs> obvious answer is no, I don't want to go to a party alone. I mean, who do I talk to? Um, but there is this good kind of thing somebody told me once, like if you go to a party and you have two drinks in your hand, you will never get a, somebody to give you another drink and you won't meet another person. So having that kind of open, not only open hands, but also an open mind and an open heart is one thing. And then the second thing is doing it, con I would say, consciously or unconsciously. Like when you look into how American politicians kind of, think about their relationships there is some kind of a pretty a, a pretty um yeah how do you say professional way in which they're doing it they they call it working the room and working the room is like trying to understand who is in the room trying to make eye contact very quickly trying to meet many many people and then spend time with as lot as many people as possible and then when you really find resonance then go deep And that's what I also try. So I think this kind of quickly scanning, quickly meeting, and then very quickly also going through that kind of clutter and, and going to the real stuff and then finding people that I resonate with. I think that's something that I really enjoy doing. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, you're right. I mean, turning up is, I don't know, 20% of what you have to do once you're there. I would say it's really... 80%. It's like 80% is being there and turning up. Yeah? Yeah, yes. you think so? Yes, okay. I think so. All right. Well, I guess many people should then just overcome that hurdle and get, you know, apply themselves, throw themselves into the mix and start those many potentially awkward small talk moments, but then also find elegant ways to detach themselves from conversations that, yeah. that that's not Absolutely. going anywhere and find the courage to say, oh, cool, nice meeting you. See you soon, hopefully, and go on to yeah. the next yeah. person. Totally. Um, let's come back to your journey. You're mm -hmm. now building a business. Prior to that, you were leading a business, um, sizable business with, you know, north of 500 million euros in, in revenue and sales. Mm -hmm. Where did you learn what you needed to know about business? So I think it, it started with interest. And um, I'm coming from a part of Germany, which is called Ostwestfalen, East and West, East Westphalia. And I come from a town called Gütersloh. It's not necessarily a large town. It has less than 100,000 people, but it's a stretch of land around it that has a lot of companies like Bertelsmann, Miele, has countless Mittelstand companies there. Um, there's also the unglorious Tönnies, uh, which you might may or may not know the largest oh, yeah. slaughterhouse in, 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 Germany, in, in, in Europe, I think. And the fruits of success of these people that are running these businesses um, were extremely visible to me. Like... Um, I mean, you, you know, my mom was a church musician, my, my dad a doctor, but my friends, oftentimes huge houses, pools in their gardens, in brackets, we never had a pool. Um, parents that drive like huge cars, newest BMW, Mercedes cars, brackets, we didn't have that. And um, a school that got a whole library building donated by Bertelsmann Foundation. So there was always this kind of, oh, the Mohn family and the Miele family, and, and it's kind of this 
big family. And then there's the, my, my personal family history is that one of my um, ancestors, my great, great grandfather, he actually invited uh, the mousetrap. And um, so he was when uh, he was quite successful in, in, uh, in as a locksmith and like, like working on a couple of projects, but he always had the urge to get out. So he went to United States to the World uh, Exhibition and um, saw a lot of stuff. And uh, actually, he bought one patent and then he developed it further. And then out came the mousetrap. And uh, he built a very, very thriving business around mousetraps, which is kind of crazy in the early 1900s. So he was, at one point in time, he had the largest mousetrap business in the world. And uh, it, it wasn't huge, obviously, but um, the business um, kind of made a name for itself. And then in the downturn, it kind of went bankrupt. And I think I saw both the tr tremendous fruit that can business provide to the people who are risk-taking, but I can also see what, what happens if the company doesn't work. But that kind of um, ups and downs and the ability to move stuff through business have been there around me early on. And then right after school, I joined, uh, joined Lufthansa German Airlines in a kind of commercial um, training program, uh, which was giving a dual education between um, like studying business administration as a bachelor's degree and then um, working at Lufthansa in various different departments. And uh, I think that's also one, one of the moments when I met some random guy who then opened a door to me. So I was in Singapore with Lufthansa and then uh, suddenly I met at, at a party, I met John and John um, was at that point in time an account director in McCann Erickson and doing the Lufthansa account. And we had a fabulous conversation. And then in that moment, it kind of appeared to me that advertising could be the best way for me to connect what I like in terms of art. So I'm, I'm drawing a lot, I'm painting a lot, and then music. Um, and then there is this whole planning side, this whole um, understanding consumers, calculating numbers, managing processes. So I thought, wow, advertising could be it. So I think that's one of the conversations where then I had the courage to say, like, hey, how can I get into this business? And then the answer was like, hey, why don't you just apply? And that's what I did. So then I met, met John. Um, she studied then at the University of the Arts here in Berlin, uh, uh, communications management, and worked part-time uh, in strategic planning in McCann for a long time, and then uh, kind of learned the nuts and bolts of advertising and communications, which was fun. It was a lot of fun, but it was also quite shallow for me. So I, I, I always had the desire to go deeper, because in advertising, especially in the planning function, you see a lot of problems that a brand has. It could be a pricing problem, distribution problem. But in the end, hey, the clients, they, they pay you to do messages. They don't pay you to solve their problems. And that's when I was reminded of, uh, of a time when I was in Lufthansa and working with a team of consultants from Roland Berger. And I think what I took away from that time, which were only like two and a half, three months, was there are people in this world who have the permission to interact with the highest levels of leadership and they are being asked and their opinion is worth a lot to the companies that hire them. And I was always wondering, could I be one of these people? Because I kind of thought it would be very fantastic to be in that seat rather than being in a, I mean, yeah, this is our apprentice uh, and he's also working on this project, but nobody really cares. And so my, my interest got sparked again into consulting. And then there was this um, one day, when McKinsey came to um, uh, Universität der Künste, which is an antithesis per se, right? I mean, McKinsey coming to the University of Arts. 
And only because there were like two alumni uh, that actually um, successfully entered McKinsey and became uh, associate partner and partner. So they um, came to university and then I, I went there. I actually came late, um, but I was like on fire. I saw people. I loved hearing it. I loved the frameworks. I loved this, I don't know, this intellectual spark and, and energy that I could feel in the room. So for me, it was clear, bye-bye advertising. I want to get into that. And then, yeah, later joined McKinsey for a workshop, then an internship, and then got an offer and then I joined I think that's where I learned a lot about corporations, um, business leadership, how people think in businesses, politics in businesses, and all that kind of stuff. And how would you compare the training impact between what you did at Lufthansa, what you did at McCann, what you did at McKinsey versus business school versus running your own business at Zalando, effectively? Yeah, so I think consulting in uh, McKinsey taught me really, really like pressured me for clarity of thought and clarity of words. And um, that means preparation. Uh, that's, that means about knowing how to write a headline, that, that is understanding what's underlaying the headline, what is supporting it, supporting argumentation, knowing the footnotes uh, of the backup, of the backup, of the backup. I mean, you know it, I know it. It's kind of super tedious, but <laughs> when asked, yep. like... It was like it was like really understanding to perform in a second, and there are sometimes it's just a split second when you need to push uh, a certain message, you need to pull up a certain slide. So I think this incredible preparation um, works well. It works well on stage when I was like like doing music, but it, it kind of also works in business because personally for me it helps me to lose fear and. Um, I think having having fear in those split seconds is not good. It's better to be like super switched on on those split seconds when you need to kind of make a decision where to turn the story and then having it ready. So I think that's one. That's that's from consulting. But I mean, consulting moves not hundreds of people. Consulting typically moves decision makers in a room and tries to say, hey, you have three options and this is option A, B, and C. And if you go through this matrix rationally, then you should take option B. Not sure what you think. And here's a couple of case studies, blah, blah, blah. And that was a mindset when I had when I when I joined Rocket and then Zalando, and um, I think I learned a very hard lesson pretty early on in my uh, my time in Zalando that I cannot move hundreds of people from very different backgrounds, from very different cultures, from very different educational levels, just through logic and well-designed PowerPoint presentations and the backup of the backup of the backup. So it's it's not about the footnotes. It's not about the diligence. There, it's really about emotionally connective messaging and creating stories that are relevant, creating things that are close to their lives and trying to see what is really in for everybody in this team, even though we are a huge team, even though we are diverse, like kind of hammering that home. That was something that I learned in my talent time, for sure. Yeah. And getting a whole movement started in a sense, right? And then having people yeah. be excited yeah. to put their capacity, their identity, their sense of purpose behind that mission. I mean, that's not trivial. I mean, it, it, you know, it's a, it, it seems to me like the theme of this conversation is beginning to go in this direction of, you know, left brain, right brain, or like, you know, Renaissance human, where you use both mm -hmm. your aesthetic faculties, mm -hmm. but you also use your instrumental rational faculties. And you kind of have to do both of that. You know, if you yeah. have all the data and the rational arguments, but there's no compelling 
vision that you know appeals to the hearts and minds that's not going to work if you have an appealing vision that is emotionally energizing mm -hmm. but there's limited confidence in how doable it is then that also isn't going to work so it's kind of both of that um let's talk about 2023 mm -hmm. we talk about people's biggest goals on on this program what's your biggest goal for 2023 what would make this an awesome year um, for me, 2023 would be an awesome year um, in a professional way when you can really push our product to the next level. And uh, I mean, as you said, like, like we are creating technology for hopefully sending, uh, sending cows into retirement when it comes to, um, when it comes to meat production. And um, I mean, we have come a very long way, but we also still have a very long way to go. So evolution and, and millions of years have created meat and, and in the end animals and it's i mean we are trying to recreate a very complex very rich experience and it would be uh, it's safe to say that um, there's still a lot of way to go but we have a couple of kpis that we want to um, kind of improve on certain parts of this overall experience that we focus on and i would be a very happy person if we make a significant step to i would say close the most critical gaps can you give us like a kpi or an area that just specifies what next level would mean on the product journey? Yeah, for example, I give you a very nerdy example about like how we think about um, chewing. So in the end, I mean, we are creating a product that you take a look at. So as a visual clue, it needs to look nice, needs to look appetizing. Then, then you take this product in your hands oftentimes when you prepare it and you need to kind of cut through it. So there's this kind of how, how resistant is it? Is it like heavy enough? Is there like, does it feel juicy enough, even if it's raw? And you're cutting a piece off and you put it into a hot pan. And if you put something that is meat into a hot pan, there is a couple of things. Number one, you will hear a certain sizzle. You will see scent developing. Um, you will have a color change from something that is deeply red to gray to brown on the surface. And then when you take it out of the pan and let it rest for a while and then you cut into it with a knife and there you would see like, oh man, this is really juicy, right? There's like, unless you are creating a, a leather sole by overcooking your meat, but then there's this kind of element of I cut into it and there's this juice release and then I take it on a, on a, on a fork and I smell on it, even though subconsciously smelling on it. And do I get the right clues from the smell? Or does it smell like toast bread? No, we don't want toast bread. We want to have like real meat, right? And then you are having the first bite and the first chew. It's not only the first bite, it's the first chew. So in the moment when your molars or your front teeth kind of go together, in that moment, the material of meat is doing something very interesting. It releases a lot of stored water with proteins with certain flavor components and it's a very juicy first bite and then if the molars go back from contraction to relaxation the material itself is not jumping back so it's not like a rubber experience but there's this kind of distinct slowness in the rebound and then when you go from this slow rebound and you start chewing on it you're kind of making it smaller it's a kind of second third of chewing is like this kind of making things smaller and then the third one is what we call the so-called bolus formation. It's a kind of funny, funny, funny thought about it. But whatever we eat, we kind of need to process it in a way that we can swallow it through a uh, piece of our body which connects the, uh, the the mouth with the stomach, right? And 
And for that, we need to have, a, in the end, a little ball. And the formation of the ball happens in our mouth. So now you saw the process from visual clue to pan to first cut to, to send. And now just zooming in on the, on the true experience. So I think we have, we have like one phase in that true experience where we're extremely good. We are like on par with meat. So we're measuring it sensorically. We have analytics on it. Uh, so we have people that are looking through it. Microscopes, texture analytics, um, wear and tear, and, and God knows what. And then we have a sensory panel. And we know that in this part of the true experience, we are really good. In the two others, there's still a lot to improve. But we know that already this kind of one phase that we nailed, we nailed it through very clear steps. And, and I'm very hopeful that we can actually do the same. So it's a pretty nerdy, deep down thing. But if we can increase the true experience significantly, that will do a lot. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating what you describe. I mean, what I take from this is that almost all senses are involved in the experience, almost all of them. Mm -hmm. from your sense of touch to your sense of smell, sight, uh, all kinds of taste sensations. So really, I mean, even the sound is involved in a sense. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a fully, full, all multimodal sensory experience. And mm -hmm. then the steps that are involved, there are so many micro steps that build up to the overall experience. You have to unpack that first if you really want to achieve yeah. success here. So, yeah. but maybe before we go too far into the details, and of course we will because one of the interesting things is how you use textile technology to crack some of this. But let's take mm -hmm. a step back. What is what is Project Eden and why did you start it? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Project Eden has the goal to significantly reduce carbon emissions um, caused by especially meat by creating meat products that are really, really enjoyable. So we are not saying like, oh, this is climate neutral or, oh, this is really good for you. But we actually start with, man, this is a damn good steak. It should be really enjoyable. So performance on the plate and palate is what we're really aiming for. Because we believe that if we can create something that's super enjoyable, it will help people to switch from high emission beef to low emission alternatives like ours. And this switch is not only, um, I would say, enjoyable, but it needs to be affordable as well. So if you think about where meat consumption currently happens, it's the United States, China, Germany, Europe. So there's all these kinds of pockets of massive meat consumption where people eat like more 50, 60 kilograms of meat per year. And then there are all the countries which are yeah, developing a middle class, emerging middle class countries. Like think about Mexico, Nigeria, Indonesia and the likes. And meat consumption in country like Nigeria is right now at around... Don't quote me on that one. I'm on a podcast. That's bad. So it's, it's single-digit kilograms. Whereas, you know what happens. So there is a GDP to per capita meat consumption correlation. And if those countries start eating meat like we do, and they will, then number one, uh, we'll have a huge problem in emissions because already right now, just from beef meat consumption, the, the current emissions are around about 6% of greenhouse gases globally. So you can expect that to rise. And then um, outside of all the health problems with antibiotics, outside of all the, I would say, animal rights and animal feelings topics, it's not nice to be slaughtered. Um, but the meat market is growing by 70% in the next two decades. Just imagine that. I mean, just imagine we already have billions of cows. We will have more than that. The market just, is going crazy. Let, 
let, let's just quickly take stock of that. I mean, the, the, yeah. the data that I saw was that the meat market in the U.S. alone, this is a couple of years ago, this is data from 2018. That's what I found. The meat market in the U.S. was 300 billion. Mm -hmm. And that's just that's just that sector. So mm -hmm. do you have a figure for what it's, what yeah. it's globally today and, and in the next two yeah. decades? Yeah, so so meat is one of the so it's one of the largest verticals within food, and food is one of the largest consumer markets. And meat alone is globally estimated in wholesale prices of around about a trillion US dollars. So that's one thousand billion, and out of those uh, tr one trillion, there's around about three hundred billion is just beef, and out of beef, um, the highest value share is captured by whole cuts. Um, so it's not the minced meat, but and burger meat, but the whole cuts, which have the highest value share. And we also know that it has the highest emission share. So if you compare, for example, the amount of CO2 em, uh, equivalents um, per kilogram of meat, if you take a look at, at beef, it's about it's high double digits. It can go from 20, 30 kilograms per kilo meat to up to 60, 70, depending on how, how the, how the um, cows are fed and how they're bred and how long they live and all that kind of stuff. And then you compare that to a chicken or a pig, um, it's significantly lower there. You talk about something like six, seven, eight kilograms per kilogram of meat, which is still crazy. Like I started thinking about it, like if I have a steak on my plate or a burger patty on my plate, then I have to imagine a tower of round about 50 steaks on top. And that's the physical weight that has been emitted in gas form into the atmosphere just because I am eating this piece of meat. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. And if you imagined it as volume, it would be, you know, huge sort of Absolutely. cavernous spaces filled with yeah. CO2 gas. Room just filling. Yes. Room filling. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So that was your, that was your original motivation, but you're not from the food industry. You don't have a background in climate tech. There's some existing yeah. players that, you know, are struggling, at least if we mm -hmm. look at their um, IPO starting valuations then mm -hmm. you know the penetration in the household the uptake it's kind of slowed down since its peak in 2020 2021 yeah. Yeah. so how did you develop the courage to just go for it i think first of all um i did a program called terra terra terra.do it's called it's a program that helped me it's like a like an online course cohort based um university style and it helped me over three months to really understand um, the main emission causes, the main potential carbon sinks that we have available as humanity, the relationship between emission and sink, which is unfortunately not good. And I think that kind of triggered the question in myself, is it, is it worth going into a business where you start trading, for example, carbon emission certificates? And I decided, no, it doesn't make any sense right now because it takes way too long to take effect. And you don't even know if it happens. And um, so I said that if I want to do something, then I want to do something that has an immediate effect. And an immediate effect is if you don't kill that, like if you don't breed the cow, then there is no emission from the cow. It's a pretty short cycle. And that means we need to create, first of all, a consumer experience that's worth for consumers to switch to. And I think the, um, you asked before, the initial motivation was um, we had an idea how to potentially solve one of the biggest problems, two of the biggest problems through a new technology and actually an old technology, but a new technology in the field. 
So challenge number one, texture. So the look, the feel, the cut resistance, the mouthfeel of, of the product. Um, if you double click on the technologies available, texture is still unsolved, especially for whole cuts. Um, secondly, price. Um, meat alternatives are very expensive in comparison to currently. Very expensive in, in comparison to the performance on plate and pellet. So um, if you think about a very subjective value that I get out as a consumer, so I'm, I'm buying this product, which looks not as delicious as the real thing from animals. I'm putting it in a pan. It doesn't have the same behavior. It smells weird, oftentimes not really great. And then I eat it and, yeah, it's okay, but it's not like, wow, this is great. It's not like, wow, I want to eat it again. So this I want more, and we actually have that internally, call it the I want more score. So how big is the I want more score of steak versus our product and competitors? Um, it becomes very clear, and it was very clear in the beginning for us that um, using a technology that is recreating muscle fibers and using those muscle fibers to create, in the end, muscles, but not animal protein-based, but plant-based, could be a way to... Um, kind of recreate an experience that we know. Optically, we proved it very fast. Taste was still a lot of challenge. We've gone a long way now. Um, and in terms of price, which is for many consumers a massive problem, especially when you think about emerging middle class, Mexico, Indonesia, and the likes, then if there is one truth, and I don't need to prove that to you, um, the value chain in textile is just tremendously cheap, especially when you think about the input products. So. Oh, yeah. If you can buy a T-shirt in H&M for €9.99, which includes 19% value-added tax, which then includes logistics, shipping, margin for the supplier, which then includes shipping and logistics and margin for the supplier behind it, which then includes margin and shipping for the guy who is actually creating fibers and yarns, then and kind of cheap to create fiber. And... Putting those things together, we said, okay, why don't we use textile technology to, in the end, produce something that is a highly organic, uh, that is, a, is an organic textile meat. And nobody had ever done it before, and that's, that's what we're currently doing. And tell me, why is the penetration of plant-based dairy so much higher than the penetration of plant-based meat? What is really working for customers in, in sort of oat milk versus yeah. meat? Also? So I think the, the, the oat milk example is a great example. Just to give you a share comparison. So the share of meat uh, of milk alternatives in the overall milk market is around 14%. I think that's the last data point that I saw. And in meat, we are talking below, um, below 1%. And that means that there's still a long way to go. And then obviously, fantasy starts kicking. Wow, it's only 1%. Look at oat milk, oat milk and soy milk. Boom, 14%. Just imagine. And then numbers come into play. Like there was a BCG study coming out and saying, like, if we can just get to 11%, then we have basically decarbonized um, as much as uh, the complete aviation industry. Just imagine cargo flights, passenger flights, the whole thing, just 10% of meat. And... Then you think like, wow, 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 it's great. But then, hey, why do people switch? Number one, I think because it has easily uh, connected to the, to, the, to the daily life of people. Like if you go to a coffee shop and you order a cappuccino or a coffee latte, then it's very easy to switch the milk, especially when there's a barista that you trust who's actually using it, promoting it. 
So I think sales channel-wise quite interesting. Secondly, um, I think there is a lot of people that um, claim to have or really have lactose intolerance. And plant-based milk is a, in a way, it's a painkiller, right? You're eating and drinking something. So you're drinking something that creates pain, inverted brackets. I'm, I'm lactose intolerant. I don't feel well after drinking milk. Versus suddenly I can have this cappuccino and I don't have pain or a digestive problem. So this is like selling aspirin to people who have a headache and it's available when you have the headache. Perfect. Um, now in meat consumption, it might be slightly different. Um, well, the equivalent could be like, well, I'm hungry, then I have to go to a certain place, but it's kind of a more complex topic. It involves restaurants, food service and, and the likes. At least to me, it sounds a little bit more complicated. And what have you learned about customer preferences? So, so I'm imagining that vegan foods are on the rise. We certainly see this increasing distribution of vegan recipe books, vegan websites, vegan cafes opening up, a vegan option on, on, on restaurant menus. Um, members of my family who follow vegan mm -hmm. diets will probably kill me now because there are still so many restaurants that are totally not catering for them. But broadly, one would have the impression that these kinds of Uh, nutrition and, and, and food options are increasingly available. Mm -hmm. And so people will go for it. They'll have more plant-based diets. Um, but what, what have you learned about consumers' preferences for hyper-realistic meat alternatives? So, so wouldn't mm -hmm. consumers rather go for, oh, oh, just sell me the halloumi or something like that, or, or sell mm -hmm. me whatever is the obvious plant-based product and mm -hmm. then make that really, really nutritious, make it have really great macros, macronutrients, mm -hmm. so great mm. protein, fat, carbohydrate mix, so it fits with my diet, and then I will yeah. do the right thing following my vegan diet. Why do you believe that there is high consumer demand in that hyper-realistic substitute space? Because meat is an inherently social product, and it's not only about the product itself, it's about the product experience, and um, there is a lot of cultural, I would say not norms, but cultural experience and, and expectations linked to meat. So when you think about whole cuts, like when do you eat steak? Well, I wouldn't eat steak on a daily basis. It's a different different thing in, in the United States maybe, but steak is something for oftentimes for business dinners and or friend circles when it's a little bit more posh. Um, then there is this whole topic of the German braten, like a roast that put gets on the gets on the on the, on the plates at, at certain um, certain holiday season, etc. And, and the likes. And there is barbecue season when there is a lot of cheapo steaks. Uh, in Germany would be pork steaks, like Schweinenackensteak. Everybody knows that. Everybody um, knows that. Pork neck, yeah. I mean, this is like marinated pork neck, cheapo stuff gets on the grill. And again, it's not something that you do alone. It's a social thing. And um, I believe that these social gatherings and mechanisms, they will be there. Like we, we won't suddenly say like, oh, I don't want to have a Christmas dinner or, oh no, I don't want to have a barbecue anymore. Or, oh no, I don't want to go with my colleagues to a dinner. Um, and they are typically linked to meat consumption because meat has a higher attached value, not only financial value, but there is this element of sacrifice, which has always been there since like thousands and thousands of years, right? At a certain um, high fest, like, like, a, like a religious festival, um, oftentimes there is a sacrifice. And that sacrifice signifies the specialty of the moment. And now, basically, you could say, like, okay, but without sacrifice, then there's no product. I would say I think we are now detached from the sacrifice. We are more in the world of social 
gatherings and in the social gatherings, a meat-like experience will be there and eating a roasted carrot can be fantastic and a aubergine can be fantastic, but oftentimes it's just not as satisfying. So we believe we're actually filling that gap that um, meat consumption would uh, leave if you just stop eating meat and then you go into vegetables, which, hey, let's face it, in, in Germany we have only 7% of people vegan and vegetarians, just 7%. And it's not really growing. I mean, it's growing a little bit, but it's not like going through the roof. So even, even if that percentage goes to 20% in a highly developed market like Germany, I mean, we need to, we need to create a switch that, that goes beyond it. So we really need to go into meat-eating people. And that's what we're trying to do. Not through the head, not through rational arguments, but through fantastic products. At, a, at an affordable price, I imagine, because, yes. again, as you mentioned, yes. precisely for those use cases, there'll be a lot of price sensitivity. And mm -hmm. the, this idea of the green premium has you know, halted much progress in general, yeah. you know, climate totally, change totally. countermeasures. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about what is the green premium for such products at the moment? I mean, presumably there are some alternatives, but like, are they 40% more expensive? twice as expensive what's the typical mm. premium that one would have to pay for a meat substitute at the moment i think it's changing rapidly um because meat alternatives have entered um for example in germany you can find it now in in, uh, in the likes of discounters like aldi lidl and the likes so i think the average price per unit will go down and and in for example in the netherlands we are now at price parity um, and that will be very fast happening here as well When you think about two things, um, one, the increase in input costs for meat. So a cow in the end eats a lot of, for example, corn or, or, or wheat products. And corn and wheat is getting more expensive. And a cow is incredibly inefficient in moving from an input protein to an output protein. Actually, 97% of the protein you put in never land on your plate. It's all like for muscle movement, building up bones and all that kind of stuff. But you will not, you will not see more than 3%, 3 to 4% of the input products on your uh, input proteins on your plate. So it's inherently inefficient, which means that if a input that is critical to creating a cow is increasing in price, it hits significantly harder to somebody who is inefficient versus to somebody who is in the end having a one-to-one -one relationship between input and output. So that's one. Number two is there is still taxation difference. So, um, the, for example, 7% versus 19% of value-added tax, I mean, that, that hasn't been touched yet. Will it be touched in the future? Most likely for many products such as meat alternatives. So that is already a 12% difference. Um, then you have, I would say, all the other factors of, for example, scalability and scale in the, in the supply chain, where a lot of scale effects haven't really materialized in, in consumer prices, but they will. So I'm very hopeful and I think all the, all the um, indicators sign into the right direction that price-wise it will be parity or even below for plant-based meats. And I think then you have a trailing um, development as well in, in precision fermentation and, 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 and lab-grown meats. And um, there's only one problem, which is lack of loyalty and lack of satisfaction. So when you take a, I mean, you ask like, okay, isn't the market down? Isn't um, 
alt meat consumption going down? Yes, in some areas it is. And when you take a look into the United States, there was a pretty cool article in the New York Times which um, dissected the um, alt meat sector, especially when it comes to burgers. And yes. um, the surprising thing is Beyond is struggling a lot, losing sales. But you have a 60% year-on-year growth in Impossible. So Impossible is growing in a down market in, at a tremendously high rate. Do they have their problems? Yes, they also have their problems. But it shows that a fantastic product experience that creates loyalty is something that is true, uh, like a true driver, um, as in every other business. And I think we haven't seen a lot of those loyalty-creating products yet in the world of meat alternatives. What's the tipping point? Like, what do you think is going to be the, the breakthrough where it moves from, oh, this is kind of interesting, let me try, let me see if I can at least substitute some meals using this as part of our overall, you know, family plan or something. Like, what's a tipping point that will make people go, yeah, no brainer? Like, is it the price? Is it like an aspect, a particular aspect of the product ex experience? What do you think? I think it, in the end, if the product is shit, it's not going to happen. So if the product is good, it happens. And I'll give you one example um, of a company that has done a tremendous job in Germany at least uh, it's called Rügenwalder Mühle so the German listeners will know that and, and they have a huge distribution and they are switching their switch basically from animal based meat to um, to more and more vegan and vegetarian options and they just have a few couple of SKUs that are tremendously good in terms of product performance and hardly indistinguishable like Mortadella for example is very very close There's a couple of other products where I say, mm, I don't like them that much, but I think it shows that with a couple of SKUs already, um, and if you take a look into Nielsen data, and it's, it's not small, I mean, I have a couple of SKUs which make multi-million, like double digit, and it's crazy. And that shows that I think the German mainstream, the moms of this world, right, they start buying a plant-based alternative for their kids. And they wouldn't do it if the kids don't like it. And I think kids are the best ever... <laughs> <laughs> um, a taste panel because if they don't want to eat it then who really wants to eat it and uh, I'm lucky I have three of those so I have a yeah exactly you have your home, your your own customer advisory board at home but um, maybe to come back to this uh, hit or blockbuster SKU stock keeping unit the one product that really sort of makes the whole thing come to life w what is it is it the steak is it the the, the nuggets I mean the children Where I'm coming from is children tend to love everything that is doused in ketchup and that sits between two sweet buns and that tastes mm -hmm. effectively. Mm -hmm. so, so they wouldn't even know, frankly, if it's a hamburger substitute or a real hamburger because it's so covered in condiment that it just basically tastes like sweet plus umami plus salty. You know, mm -hmm. that's what they take away from it. So you don't really know whether the the burger, the plant-based burger is lifting its weight or, or not because it just tastes like ketchup. So... Mm -hmm. What's going to be the product that is on its own terms, without all the window dressing, going to be the blockbuster success? Is, is it like the entrecote steak or, or what is it? To be very honest, it's very hard to say at this point in time. So I think there is my core belief is that or our core belief as a company is that um, if we can deliver a fantastic steak, we can deliver a lot of other products as well, which are deriv derivative of that. So think about... Um, just cold cuts. There's tons of cold cuts which are coming from, I mean, it's a, it's a slice of, of a big slab of meat, right? 
Then there is different types of whole cuts, which are served warm. So there's a steak, yes, there's a flank steak, there's an entrecote, there's like all the other things. There's topics like why does it have to be beef always? I think the technology itself is very versatile. Um, we are starting with beef because we believe beef has the highest emissions problem, market value, and we have a tech advantage to create something optically very resembling. But we don't believe that we should stop there. So it, for me, it's currently very hard, which is going to be the commercial number one product. But I think it's going to be a whole cut product and all slices of it. Um, and this is a gigantic market already. Jan, in the early days when you were experimenting with the product, I'm imagining that you had many experiences that were difficult at first, whether it relates to the taste or to the color or to the texture. When was the first time that you felt, oh, wow, this really could work? So very, very early. So, um, so we started this and with this idea on the whiteboard and then we went into prototyping, like super early prototyping, potentially within like one to two weeks. We, we just like bought, ex bought ingredients and then we had a way to do that literally in our own home. Um, to see, like, can we create a filamentous fiber out of those ingredients? Would that work? And um, we didn't have a spinning line. We didn't have compounding technology at that point in time. So what we did, we used the very most simple thing that you can imagine. So we, And we thought, we don't need to be at 80 microns diameter, which we are currently at. So we said, like, hey, how about we do something that's like three, three millimeters thick? So think about Duplo Lego versus like normal Lego, right? So that kind of order of magnitude and in, 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 uh, low resolution. So we did a low resolution prototype using syringes, literally like syringes. And I live in Kreuzberg. It's kind of a funny experience if you go to a pharmacy and ask for syringes. So um, anyway, so we saw that it can work. And then immediately we said, oh, can we kind of compound it? Does it then look like a piece of meat? And took a couple of pictures and yeah, could be. It fell apart in the pan, it didn't work at all, but it looked like this. And then we said, okay, next up is let's go into a more higher resolution. And that's when we started renting out uh, a lab in Aachen University, where, where, where David's um, uh, uh, home is, like academic home, alma mater. And, um, well, one of your co-founders, right? Yes, and then within, within, literally within days, we saw, okay, this works. And then it was like, damn, is this now too simple? Um, but the, after this initial crazy high came a very fast, mm, pretty bad. Like we were trying to cut it and put it in a pan. It was like not working at all. Uh, didn't hold together. We had a lot of problems with cross-linking fibers and all that kind of stuff. And, and for months, we couldn't solve those problems, even though he had fantastic images. And taste-wise, was okay, but it wasn't great. And then... You imagine you have like, okay, now we have crosslink solved. Oh, we changed proteins. Oh, great. And then suddenly, yeah, taste should be easy. And then you start working with available taste solutions. And no, it's not easy. It's hard. It's really, really hard. And then we hit glass walls all the time, glass ceilings, like glass ceilings all the time. And, and, and sometimes in places that we never really thought they would be existing. And then, yeah, it just means... It, This kind of old saying, it always takes at least two to three times longer than you think and plan is very true, at least for our journey so far. Are you solving problems 
at the molecular level? Like, do you have to go down to what are these proteins made of and how should we change them so that they deliver the physical properties that we want? And same for taste. I mean, are you deep in the sort of, is it almost like a deep tech project where you really have to work with scientists to figure out this molecular problem? Yeah, I mean, when you take a look in our team, we are currently around about 25 people and 18 to 20 of them are uh, come from food technology or have an R&D background. And yes, they go deep down into questions of protein, uh, folding, linking, um, taste profiles. Uh, and then you have processing. And I mean, there's this whole complexity of If you change an ingredient, you have process A, that ingredient might work with process A, but it doesn't work with process B. So there's a lot of process and product technology that has to work together. And it's a very, um, how do you say, um, we need people from many different disciplines, mechatronics engineer, tissue engineer, chef, food product developer, um, and, and, and people that are experts in, in, in measurement technology. So. It's kind of fun that we have this band of people coming from all these different backgrounds and, and all working hand in hand um, towards that one kind of goal right now, which is really cool. But it also means going down to molecular questions. I mean, we wouldn't be able to uh, change protein structures because that also would include like and creating novel ingredients, which we actually don't want to. But yeah, you need to really understand what's going on under the, under the hood in the end. Well, What what's your strategy for building this? Do you first want to get a prototype level product really really right so that you nail the product even if it involves lots of workaround and lots of custom solutions and so on, or do you try to design things to be able to scale later on right from the beginning? Mm, I think it, you can't do the one without the other, uh, and then there are points in a um, product development where. We always call it, that's what we lock in now. So we lock in certain process technology and certain process parameters. And we lock in certain ingredient combinations. And um, for example, now we started like disassembling our process and we, we started locking in process steps early on. And for example, in fiber making, we have now very, very scalable solution. In the assembly process, there are machines and we have like IP developed around it and, and, and that kind of stuff. But currently, we focus, on we focus on maximizing experiments and maximizing learnings, which means that if we are building machines that are standardizing processes before the product is right, we are cementing ourselves into infrastructure that would potentially lock us in a low level that will never create a fantastic experience. So to answer your question in short is, yes, we are locking in stuff and yes, we are scaling stuff. Um, but at the same time, we always keep flexibility and learning maximized wherever it's necessary. And I think this journey will never really end. Like then you've done one product and then you optimize for the next product and, and the likes and the likes. Just coming back one more time to the early days of when you all started out. At the... At the time, you had built up quite the track record in the fashion industry. You had effectively built the private labels business of Zalando from scratch. It was um, at a point in time well north of 500 million euros in sales. Why not do a why not do a round two in fashion? Why do this complete break? 
And I'm, and I'm asking specifically because just last week on the podcast, we talked about endings and beginnings. And it's very, I mean, you're, you're a great example here because you said, no, actually, mm -hmm. I think I'm, I'm done with fashion. That was fun. And I want to mm -hmm. go do something else. Like, why not a round two? Because I feel that what I'm really fascinated about is creating something completely new. So I was always driven by the question, like, can I complete, can I build something completely new out of nothing to something? I think that is, first of all, fascinating. And that is a early stage versus late stage topic. Um, I've looked a lot into potential from nothing to something ideas in the fashion space, but somehow there wasn't the energy. It didn't draw me. It just, I don't know. It's, I just didn't feel, didn't feel the energy there anymore. And then, yeah, this other thing, I think food is a way bigger problem right now. Yes, fashion has pollution problems. Fashion has, I mean, all this kind of fast fashion uh, waste problem um, and pollution is, is, is well known. There are social problems that need to be solved and all the likes. But I think there's a lot of people already working on it, whereas somehow there needs to be opportunity, energy, and a very specific idea And um, I didn't have it in the world of fashion, um, so I had I was very lucky to have it in the world of food, which in the end is technically very similar. It's a, it's an organic textile. It's just not a synthetic textile. <laughs> nice. What a comparison. Next qu next question. Uh, the last time you felt giddy with joy and couldn't help smiling was when what happened? One example is we received an inbound application from a French guy who actually works in worked in Japan who asked us if he could potentially work in our company. We were like, what? Is are you kidding me? And long story short, he joined, but I think this is one of the crazy moments. Like suddenly experts, deep, deep, deep down crazy experts from the world start raising their hands and saying, like, hey, we want to join. I think this is really cool. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds awesome. What's the The best thing about your co-founders, David and Hubertus? Complementarity. Say more, how? We are very different and very same at the same time. And what's, what's one superpower they have that you lack? Mm, I have no clue how to build machinery. David knows that very well. Um, Hubertus has this, I would say, not only experience, but deep down feeling for what resonates with consumers, which I maybe have, but I think he has it way more. Um, yeah, I think it's definitely complementary in that sense. If you happen to come across five to 10 times more funding, what would you do immediately? Put it in a bank account and really start thinking very, very thoroughly how to put that money to work. Because bigger team doesn't mean faster. More machines don't mean better. So it's a very mindful decision. So I think that would, could accelerate us significantly. And I have a few ideas how to do it, but I would not say, oh, let's just put it all on this one thing. I have a portfolio of topics. What's the best way for you to unplug from work? Um, being on my bike. I love biking, like not, not the race biking and performance biking like you do, uh, Boris, and I'm not wearing all this funny gear. I just have a very nice um, electric bike uh, that I, for example, 
used to to bring uh, my youngest son to kindergarten every day so that kind of gave me at least 40 minutes on the bike in the morning and um yeah i love it i just love the wind i love i love seeing different things and i like the speed um of biking versus walking but i also love to walk that but it sounds to me like you're you're ready for a real road bike experience you just didn't I have one so but we'll, yeah, we'll yeah, take yeah, care absolutely. of that <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> we'll, we'll take care of that yeah. last question jan one person who deserves a shout out and whom you never quite thanked enough is my wife carmen without her i wouldn't be here very nice what a great place to end on jan thank you so much for this conversation i'm uh, glad we can deliver you safely now to the rest of your day and hopefully to your holidays soon Thanks for coming on the show. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me, Boris. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like the show, please recommend the podcast to a friend. Give us a rating and a quick review wherever you listen to it. This helps others who might be interested to find the show. If there's a topic we should absolutely cover or a guest you'd recommend, please send us your ideas and feedback to dwff.pod at gmail.com.